This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. In the aftermath of the September 11th terrorist attacks on the United States, Congress created the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund, which provided compensation for economic and non-economic loss to individuals or the personal representative of individuals who were killed or physically injured during those attacks. The initial fund operated until 2004, Since that time, several laws passed that authorized the VCF to accept claims for a specific time frame. This was the case until President Trump signed into law H.R. 1327, the VCF Permanent Authorization Act. What are the key priorities of the Victim Compensation Fund? Who is eligible to submit a claim and how do you do it? And what does the future hold for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund? I'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest. Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. My co-host from IBM is Don Fenhagen. Rupa, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Don, welcome as always. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Rupa, would you give us an overview of the history and mission of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund? How has it evolved since its inception? The VCF was originally created in 2001, immediately following the attacks. It was created as an alternative to tort litigation um, so that these matters wouldn't have to be resolved in the courts and was designed to provide compensation for any individual or the personal representatives of those who were killed, um, who suffered physical harm or who were killed in the attacks, in the buildings, on the airplanes, or who responded within the first very short time period, about 72 hours. So it was very, very limited in scope. That VCF, which we call VCF-1, operated from 2001 to 2004 under the director of Special Master Ken Feinberg. And it closed in 2004 after having distributed $7 billion to over 5,000 people um, who were immediately affected by the attacks. By 2011, it had become very clear that the effects of the attacks and the exposure to the toxins that were present at all three of the crash sites were having lingering health effects for responders, for people who participated in cleanup, uh, and even for people who were just living or working or going to school in the area. And so in 2011, Congress passed and, and President Obama signed into law what we know as the Zadroga Act, which was intended to reopen the VCF and provide compensation for the people who were continuing to feel these health effects. Uh, We were reopened in 2011. At that time, they provide $2.775 billion in funding. And we were supposed to be open for five years, closing in 2016. 
in 2015, it became clear that we weren't going to finish. And so they reauthorized us for another five years until 2020 and provided additional $4.6 billion in funding. When I came on board in 2016, we had $7.375 total billion in funding, and we were slated to close in December of 2020. By February of 2019, it became clear not only that claims were continuing to come in, that people were continuing to get sick, but also that that amount of money was not going to be enough, even for the claims that we knew we had or that we expected to receive. And so actually, in February of 2019, I had to make a very, very hard decision required by the law and decide to slash the awards. We announced at that time that we would be reducing the awards by up to 70% because we didn't have enough funding to compensate all of the claims that we knew we had. And the statute required me to take some action to make sure that we didn't exceed the available funding. Partly as a consequence of that announcement, but also partly as a consequence of just the real fact that there are so many needy claimants, Congress at that time made a concerted effort to renew the statute. And that's the bill that President Trump signed into law in July of 2019, reauthorizing the VCF essentially permanently. Mm -hmm. We're now reauthorized until 2090 and providing as much appropriated funds as may be necessary for all eligible claims. You know, um, with that, I mean, that's a tremendous mission that you're leading. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit more about your specific responsibilities and duties as the special master of the VCF. And, you know, you mentioned Ken Feinberg. Maybe you could tell us a little bit more about the term special master. So when Congress established the VCF in 2001, it created this special master position. And the intent really was to create someone who could serve as a neutral arbiter. Um, They wanted to take it outside of the government. They wanted to make sure that it was someone who wasn't infected by politics and have someone serve as a neutral arbiter because they vested Congress, when I say they, I mean Congress, vested a tremendous amount of discretion in this person. The way that the statute is set up, it was set up that way back in 2001. It remains so to this day, is that the special master makes the final determinations on these awards, and they're not subject to any sort of judicial review. So the decisions that are being made by the special master are final. We have an administrative internal appeal process. That Mm -hmm. was true in the CF1 as well. So there is an internal mechanism for reconsideration, but there's no outside review of these awards. And so they really wanted to create this sort of mechanism that was basically the last word. And that's why they use the special master term. It was created as an appointment made by the attorney general. The attorney general in 2001 was John Ashcroft appointed Mr. Feinberg, and he served in that capacity. When the VCF was reopened as VCF 2 in 2011, uh, Sheila Birnbaum, who was a very, very accomplished tort litigator, was appointed as the special master. And when she left the program in 2016, that's when I was appointed by Attorney General Lynch. So, Rupa, with such an important mission, I'd like to explore how you execute on it. Uh, How is the Victim Compensation Fund organized? What's the scale of its operation and geographical footprint? And uh, how many folks work in the fund? Um, The VCF is a very, very big program. We operate with about 175 employees and contractors. We have two offices, one in D.C. where most of our operations are run. But we also obviously have an office in New York. It is the hub of our appeal process. Um, And it's also the place from which we sort of coordinate all of our interface with the 9-11 community. And so I have two deputy special masters that help me out in the day-to-day, one in New York and one in D.C., both of whom run operations in their respective offices. 
the staff includes attorneys, support personnel, um, people who process, evaluate, and adjudicate the claims, contractors who are responsible for operations, including a toll-free helpline that we operate, our correspondence and payment processing procedures, as well as our IT, because we do run a pretty substantial website that gets a significant number, a significant amount of traffic, as well as all of our claims are subject to online filing, and we process the claims online as well. We operate with the support, obviously, with the Department of Justice and specifically with the Civil Division, which provides our operational and sort of back office support. The scale of the operation is really big, um, and so it's quite a lot to oversee. On average, each month, the VCF helpline receives about 3,000 calls. We send out about 10,000 pieces of correspondence each month to attorneys and and to the claimants, and we receive an average about 3,000 pieces of mail each month. We're still getting around 600 claims a month. That's that's amazing. That's a lot, a lot, a lot of work to manage. Uh, as VCF Special Master, what are the top three challenges that you face in your position, and how are you addressing those challenges today? That is a it's a really interesting question, and and on one level, it's one that I would have answered very differently just a few months ago. Um, I'll come back to that in a second. But the the biggest challenge I have, and it's been the same challenge since I started in this position, is to get claims reviewed and awards out to these claimants in a manner that is timely, fair, and as efficient as possible. It has always been my goal to try to do that from submission to determination in 12 months or less. We were significantly behind that goal when I started in 2016. We've gotten closer to it, but we're not there yet. But we are definitely trying to get there. The one thing that has changed significantly is obviously with the permanent authorization of the VCF Funding is no longer a problem. Mm-hmm. For a very, very long time, for the first three years of my of my tenure, one of my biggest concerns was to make sure that we didn't run out of money, that we had enough money to compensate everyone, at least at some level, who came in the door because they were suffering from an illness as related to their 9-11 exposure. And so we were very, we were very, very careful. We, had to, we did a lot of projections. We did a lot of thinking about how the money was going to be spread out amongst this population because I wanted to be very sure that every claimant who came in got at least something. It goes without saying that there is no amount of money that can compensate for these sorts of losses. But we're created for that purpose, and we do what we can, and we're hopeful that it provides at least some amount of relief to these claimants. The problem of money no longer exists because we have now been permanently funded and we have been given by Congress a grant of discretion to make as much awards as we think are necessary. But that said, it has raised a new challenge, which is that we received that grant from Congress because we had demonstrated the fiscal responsibility and the responsible stewardship of government funding that was necessary to get that level of confidence. We, of course, need to maintain that as we move forward. You've certainly illustrated kind of a, a job that's in unchartered territory, and you've kind of learned a lot along the way. Along with all the challenges you encountered, what you do can be fraught with unanticipated, un- unexpected surprises. And to that end... You know, since taking this role, what's what's surprised you the most about the uh, the job and the mission? I think what has surprised everyone uh, in the 9-11 community, myself included, is the increase in the number of people who are getting sick and dying due to their 9-11 related illnesses. There is simply no accurate count of how many people were exposed to toxins stemming from the attacks. And there is considerable uncertainty about the number of individuals who ultimately will fall ill 
due to the long latency periods that can elapse before manifestation of the cancers that have been determined to be related to 9-11 exposure. Some of those cancers we may not even see for another few years because they have these long medical latency periods. We've also suffered from what we like to call an information gap. There are so many people who are eligible for compensation in our program who either don't know that we exist, don't know that their illnesses are related to their 9-11 exposure, or believe that the VCF is only for New York City first responders. One of the stories that I always like to tell is the first meeting that we had with FBI agents and employees following my appointment The FBI was in charge of the site. It was a terrorist attack. They were there from the beginning. And yet many of them had never heard of the VCF, weren't entirely aware that their illnesses that they were suffering from were related to their exposure and had not filed their applications with the fund. Sixteen FBI agents and employees have passed away as a result of their 9-11 related exposure. And yet it was a black box to them. And so we never take for granted that the people who are supposed to be helped by this fund actually know that we are out there. And I think that has surprised me tremendously. With the important mission you have, um, your background, your your approach, I was wondering about leadership. How do you lead uh, such an important fund? What are some of the characteristics? What makes one an effective leader in your mind? Serving as the special master of the VCF has been, without a doubt, one of the biggest challenges of my career. I've been in government for most of it, uh, almost all of it, but the VCF is a massive operation. It has a lot of moving parts, uh, and there is a tremendous amount of external scrutiny, both from Congress, but also from the 9-11 community and from the very many advocacy groups who are involved in the process. Having been in federal government for most of my career, though, I think it's served me well in sort of figuring out how to take a leadership role in the organization. Internally, with my own staff, my goals have always been to communicate, to collaborate, and to provide opportunities for people to take ownership and responsibility for the success of the fund. And my team has responded admirably. We have gone through a tremendous amount of change since I came on board in 2016, Uh, Just as an example of that, in the first five years of the fund from 2011 to 2015, we decided just 9,000 claims. We have decided over 8,000 claims in every year since. So we have very much stepped up what we're doing. We've changed a lot of processes. We've streamlined our operations. But my team has met those goals uh, every step of the way. They have voiced their ideas. They have enthusiastically thought through the implementation of new processes. They have met every successive goal that we have set. And and it's really brought about a sea change in the way that the fund operates and the way that it's perceived. And that's been sort of the second prong of what I've had to do as the special master of the fund is really maintain those external communications and those external relationships. And my goal there has just been transparency, fairness, and justifiable results. We have to be able to explain what we're doing every step of the way to a community that cares this much, and that has been affected in such a personal way. The results of the efforts that we have made in that front were nowhere more apparent to me than in the response to the decision I had to make in February when we reduced the awards by up to 70%. That is possibly the hardest decision I have ever had to make. It had devastating consequences for an extremely vulnerable population of people who are sick and who are dying. But the response to that from everyone across the board, from Congress, the claimants, the advocates, the press— found no fault in the VCF, in me, or in the decision. 
Instead, the reaction was overwhelmingly to praise the VCF's operation, to acknowledge that the need was greater than anyone could have anticipated, and to make a dedicated and ultimately successful effort to seeking renewal and additional funding for the fund. And that's very, very gratifying. What are the core elements of the VCF Permanent Authorization Act? I will ask Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the VCF, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. To support government financial performance and accountability, financial systems must meet certain standards, and relying on outdated financial systems inhibits progress. ERP vendors are encouraging clients to move to the cloud and consider new technologies such as robotic process automation, blockchain, and AI to enhance financial productivity. Download the IBM Center Report Financial Management for the Future at businessofgovernment.org to learn why and how government can evolve to meet the demands of a digital world. The Ebola crisis in West Africa from 2014 to 2016 was an epidemic that put emphasis on global capacity to respond to international disasters. How can government better assess the needs of those affected and help them? The IBM Center Report Responding to Global Health Crisis by Professor Jennifer Widner breaks down the U.S. response to the Ebola crisis and provides insights on lessons learned that may aid the government responses in the future. Download your free copy, Responding to Global Health Crisis, at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. So, Rupa, you mentioned earlier the permanent authorization of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. I'd like for you to talk a little bit more, uh, maybe perhaps elaborate on the core elements of that law, and perhaps uh, um, how does it differ from the other authorizations, both the original, uh, the 2011-2015? Uh, For the most part, the law remains unchanged from how it was when, when we started this process. Um, but there are two very large exceptions that were part of the most recent enactment by Congress. Obviously, the length of time that claims were allowed to be filed and the removal of the funding cap. Prior to passage of the law, the deadline for filing a claim was December 18th, 2020, and a lot of our materials and our website all reflected that date. Um, now, people can file a claim until October 1st, 2090, which is essentially intended to give everyone who was there, in however old they might have been at the time, an opportunity to file a claim with the fund if they become ill as a result of their presence. And, of course, as we've talked about, while we previously operated with a set amount of appropriated funding that we could not exceed, the new law appropriates such funds as may be necessary to pay all eligible claims. So I'd like to do a follow-up there. I'd like to get into the mechanics. You mentioned there was an information gap, and it was around eligibility, I think you mentioned earlier, in terms of folks not knowing that this fund existed or that they were eligible to, to submit a claim. Could you tell us more about who actually is eligible? And how would they go about submitting the claim and maybe perhaps give us an overview of the claims processing? So the VCF process has two distinct steps, registration and filing a claim. Registration is simple. It preserves your right to file a claim in the future if you become sick. You can register on the website, which is www.vcf.gov, 
or over the phone by calling the VCF helpline, 1-855-885-1555. You don't need to be sick, exhibiting symptoms, or have a certification from the World Trade Center Health Program in order to register. We encourage everyone who may have been there to register with the VCF now, even if they're not sick, to avoid missing any of our deadlines. There is no harm in registering, and it does not obligate you to file a claim, and it does not waive any legal rights. The second step is filing a claim. And filing a claim is done once the World Trade Center Health Program, which is our sister program operated out of HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, has certified that you have an eligible 9-11-related illness. Filing a claim requires the completion of a claim form and the submission of a number of relevant documents. As a general rule, we review claims first in, first out. So we review them in the order in which the claim was submitted. And the time frame for processing depends on the type and complexity of the claim, whether the documents needed have been submitted, and, other, and a variety of other factors. We review claims in two phases, eligibility and compensation. For eligibility, we're looking at the claim to determine whether the claimant is eligible to receive compensation under the parameters that are laid out in the statute. These include whether or not the claim was timely registered, whether or not the claimant has proven by evidence that they were present at one of the attack sites, which in New York City is all of Manhattan south of Canal Street or at the Pentagon or at the Shanksville site, and that the claimant and the, and the criteria continue, the claimant suffers from an eligible physical injury or condition as certified or verified by the World Trade Center Health Program. We do only compensate for physical health conditions. The World Trade Center Health Program will treat for mental health conditions Mm -hmm. and certify for mental health conditions, but we are prohibited by law from compensating for mental health conditions. Um, And finally, we a claimant is only eligible to participate in the VCF if they comply with the act's requirement that any 9-11 related lawsuit be waived, settled, or properly dismissed. As I mentioned at the very beginning, the VCF is an alternative to tort litigation, and so the waiver of the right to litigate is part of the process, and you have to waive the right to file a civil suit arising from your injuries as a result in order to participate in the VCF. Uh, that's, That's very informative. Thank you. Um, after after the eligibility review, once a claim is deemed eligible, would you tell us more about how the claimant is compensated? How is the compensation determined? And you know, is there a methodology or calculation from VCF one and VCF two that you guys use? For compensation, all awards are individually compensated based on the specific circumstances of the claim. So we do look at each claim individually to determine the appropriate value of the award. The VCF reviews eligible claims to determine two different kinds of compensation. We compensate for what we call non-economic loss, and this is a pain and suffering award, essentially. And in appropriate cases, we will also compensate for economic loss, which is when someone can't work as a result of their physical condition, and therefore we are compensating loss of earnings or employment benefits out into the future because they've been determined to be disabled as a result of their 9-11-related condition. So non-economic loss awards 
starting in 2016, um, because Congress changed the law, are capped by statute at $90,000 for non-cancer conditions and $250,000 for a cancer condition. In order to receive a non-economic loss award, you don't have to do anything other than be eligible. If you meet the eligibility criteria, you registered on time, you were present, you have a certified condition from the health program, you've waived your right to file a lawsuit, you automatically receive a non-economic loss award. Economic loss awards are dependent on a disability determination. So if a government entity like the Social Security Administration or the Workers' Comp Board or a pension entity or a private insurer has determined that the claimant suffers from a full or partial occupational disability as a result of an eligible 9-11-related physical injury or condition, then we'll calculate economic loss. The economic loss calculation is very individualized. It's based on a variety of factors, looking at what the rate of income was, how many years of work life were remaining, how old the claimant is, um, what sorts of benefits they were receiving from their employer, like health insurance benefits or retirement benefits or pension benefits. In limited cases, we will reimburse for out-of-pocket medical expenses um, or for burial costs in deceased claims. And we always ask the claimants for additional information as needed. We are required by law to subtract from our calculated awards what we call collateral offsets, which are benefits that are paid to the claimant by other entities because of the eligible 9-11 related condition. So if the claimant is receiving a disability benefit from Social Security or a workers' comp benefit or a pension disability benefit, then those amounts are calculated out into the future and subtracted or offset from our award so that we're not doubled, so that the claimant isn't double dipping. These offsets can include disability benefits, uh, survivor benefits and deceased claims, settlements from lawsuits that were filed before the statute was uh, enacted, and in the case of deceased claim, life insurance that's paid to the victim's beneficiaries. I think you touched on it before, but what's the relationship between the Victims' Compensation Fund and the World Trade Center Health Program? So the World Trade Center Health Program is operated out of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, Centers for Disease Control. Um, It's specifically housed in the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health, or NIOSH. Um, We have a terrific relationship with NIOSH and the administrator of the World Trade Center Health Program, uh, Dr. John Howard. Their their program is critical to our success and vice versa. Um, we have very much a symbiotic relationship. <laughs> the health program is responsible for medical monitoring and treatment. So when someone was present at one of the 9-11 attack sites, they have what the health program has identified as a 9-11 related condition. They can go to the health program and their treatment is covered by the health program. It varies a little bit depending on whether or not they're classified by the health program as a responder or whether or not they're classified as a survivor, meaning someone who just worked or lived in the area um, because private insurance comes into play for some of those people. But for the most part, um, the health program provides medical treatment for those conditions. They also provide what we use as a finding of causation. They certify a condition as being related to 9-11 exposure, 
And we use that as our basis for the eligibility determination that the claimant suffers from a 9-11 related physical health condition. So the relationship is highly corroborative. We have an information sharing arrangement in place. We meet frequently. We talk regularly. It is important to make clear, however, that we are different Mm -hmm. programs. We have different criteria. Our eligibility criteria are different. Our enrollment processes are different. um, And our missions are different. There are treatment program. We're a compensation program. Um, You have to register separately. Enrolling in one doesn't mean that you are enrolled in the other, which is a common misconception. Um, And so we always want to make clear that uh, there are two separate processes and people should make sure that they're properly enrolled in both. The eligibility criteria overlap to a very large extent, but they are not coextensive. And so it is possible to be treated in the health program and not be eligible for VCF compensation. Great. And can you give us a status on compensated versus filed claims year over year? And, you know, do you have what you need? Are they are there any challenges or bottlenecks on processing all that that data? So uh, the number of claims filed with the fund has increased year over year, um, in some cases exponentially. In the first five years of the fund through December 2016, so from 2011 to 2016, we received about 19,000 compensation claims. In the two years after that, from 2016 to 2018, we received an additional 20,000. And we have already received 10,000 in 2019 to date. So the number of claims continues to come in at a pretty fast clip. In total, uh, we have found more than 25,000 claimants eligible for compensation. We have rendered compensation determinations in over 24,000 claims, some more than once due to an amendment or an appeal, and we have paid out over $5.67 billion. Those compensated include first responders, people who worked or volunteered in rescue, recovery, cleanup, construction, or debris removal at all three sites, as well as people who lived, worked, or went to school in the affected areas of New York City and were exposed to toxins resulting from the attacks, the airline crashes, or the building collapses. Claims continue to come in, and we currently have just over 18,000 claims and amendments pending determination, with new claims coming in at about 600 claims a month. So you provided us, and it was really important, some uh, legislative and processing uh, context. I'd like to explore your strategic vision for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund because of its updated mission, if you will, and funding levels, if you will. What are some of your key priorities going forward? To be honest, our mission remains very much the same, serving the needs of this incredibly deserving community, getting awards out to them as quickly as possible, making sure that the results that we're creating are fair and justifiable. With the passage of the legislation, we're now in a position to continue to do that for for the foreseeable future. We no longer have to worry about closing down shop, about when the last claims are going to come in, um, et cetera. So right now we're, we're, we're taking a deep breath, giving ourselves a little bit of time to, to think carefully about what kind of changes can continue to improve the process now that it will be in place until 2090. And how best to handle some of the changes that will come with the passage of time. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that has concerned many of us, of course, is that as time passes, the ability to 
prove by evidence that you were present at the site tends to fade. Memories fade. Witnesses pass away. Employment employer records are destroyed under ordinary records destruction principles. Medical records no longer exist. And so we're trying to figure out what the best mechanisms are for preserving that sort of evidence and making sure that it's available to us so that we can make legitimate decisions going forward. That's great. Fraud would be an issue there, right? Mitigating that. Fraud is always an issue in a government program. We are very proud to say that we have not had any instance of fraud detected in a paid claim. Obviously, we have mechanisms in place uh, to try to identify and deal with fraud. And we have a very good working relationship with the Department of Justice's Office of Inspector General to which we refer any claims of potential fraud. How is the VCF enhancing its processes and operations? We'll ask its special master, Rupa Bhattacharya when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How does an agency decide upon and implement a performance management framework that will be successful for their specific administration? The IBM Center Report, a practitioner's framework for measuring results, follows the implementation and results of the CSTAT management framework in Colorado's Department of Homeland Security, in hopes that it can guide others who may want to institute a similar approach. Download a practitioner's framework for measuring results by Melissa Wavelet on businessofgovernment.org today. What are the strategic priorities of USAID? How is USAID engaging in the private sector to enhance development solutions? What is USAID's digital strategy? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bonnie Glick, Deputy Administrator at U.S. Agency for International Development, next week on the Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Network. Agile methodology has allowed for agencies to keep up with the growing demands for fast response to problem solving. The Opportunity Project, TOP, serves as a catalyst in adapting agile techniques to solve complex agency mission problems. TOP works with federal agencies to identify challenges and facilitate iterative approaches in response. In the IBM Center Report, Agile Problem Solving in Government, Joel Gurin and Katerina Ribello discuss the factors of success involved in TOP. Download your free copy today at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. In the previous segment, um, you, you gave us an overview of the claims process. I was wondering, over the, I guess, the seventh year of operation, um, could you tell us how you have maybe enhanced or streamlined the process itself? We've taken a number of steps to do that, and and frankly, we're constantly trying to refine the claims process and, as a result, tweaking tweaking our procedures and sometimes our policies as needed. Um, we've, We've certainly made progress in shortening the amount of time it takes to have a claim move through the process, although we frankly have more 
progress to make on that front. Um, we have done a lot of refining of our policies and procedures and making sure that we are we have consistent policies in place, although I always like to make the point that consistency is not our overarching goal. Um, the statute makes it very clear that the special master is to look at these claims on an individual basis and make decisions based on the individual circumstances of the claim. And so while we have policies and, and rules in place that are the presumptive way in which we do things, that they're not going to decide every claim because we do look at every claim on an individual basis because what we want to be more than anything else is fair to these claimants and make sure that we're compensating for the losses that each of them has suffered individually. Um, and so we, we spend a lot of time looking at those policies and we've tweaked a number of them. Um, we have a very, very... Um, collegial relationship with the legal community that represents a very large number of our claimants. Um, about 80% of our claimants are represented by attorneys, although it is not necessary to have an attorney in order to file a claim in the program. And in fact, our helpline, which I mentioned previously, sort of takes it upon itself to be the advocates for our unrepresented claimants uh, and to make sure that they understand what the requirements are, that if we are missing information, that we make affirmative efforts to reach out to them and explain what's needed. Um, and so you can file a claim in the program without an attorney. That said, a large number of our claimants do have attorneys. Um, their fees are, they are allowed attorney's fees under the statute, but they are capped by the statute. Um, but we have a very collegial relationship with them, and we do try to make sure that they are kept apprised of what our policies and procedures are so that they can set reasonable expectations with their claimants, but also so that they can make sure that we're doing our job and push back when they see something that looks a little off and make sure that we haven't missed something or that we've made the best decision that we can with the information that they can give us. Mm -hmm. you know, as a follow-up, are you continuing the fast-track process and policy of rendering decisions? And when is this done? And are there any plans to expand it beyond the fast-track process? So the fast-track process that we have in place is used to decide those claims that are seeking only non-economic loss, which is that pain and suffering award that is based on the conditions that the claimant suffers from and the severity of those conditions. So it doesn't require a tremendous amount of additional documentation or analysis the way the economic loss claims do, which requires some understanding of employment benefits and pay scales and pension plans and et cetera. Um, they're, they're much simpler to decide because they're based simply on the conditions that are reported to us by the health program as well as information provided by the claimants through their medical records about how severe the particular condition is in that claimant. A very large percentage of our claims fall into this non-economic loss only category. Um, and as the population that was exposed to 9-11 ages, we expect that that will continue to be true simply because they're less likely to suffer from long employment-related losses. And so deciding fast-track claims remains a very big part of our process and is likely to get a little bit bigger as time goes on. And, and how has the VCF compensation process been enhanced with the uh, purpose of increasing payment processing? 
Right. So our payment processing is um, is one area where things go very, very well. Um, we have an extremely good relationship with the Department of the Treasury, which actually cuts the checks. We don't everything's electronic these yeah. days, but um, but they do all of our our payment processing. And so usually by the time a determination is made, we have everything that we need to go to payment processing, and they move ahead with it. Um, one of the things that we are very, very proud of is our expedite process. Um, this was put in place to deal with claimants who are suffering from terminal illnesses um, or have very significant financial hardship. They are required to make a demonstration that they qualify for an expedited processing. But these claims can go from submission to payment in as little as three weeks. Wow. Um, and so they are very, very fast. And although the circumstances that warrant expedition can be in some cases truly saddening, um, we're often dealing with claimants that are literally looking at the last few weeks of their lives. Um, we are gratified that we are able to issue these sorts of payments as quickly as possible to provide some sense of solace and financial security to claimants who are facing these sorts of circumstances so that they know that their families can be taken care of. Uh, and, you know, obviously the... Uh the internet and online systems has kind of changed a lot of things on how we do processing for programs across the government. Your online system continues to serve as a critical tool for both our claimants and the VCF team as claims move through the internal review processes. Can you tell us more about the efforts to enhance both the internal admin portal and the external claimant portal? And you know what you know to what extent has your team embraced an agile approach to developing all these systems? Our systems team is focused on improving the usability and efficiency for users of both our internal admin portal, our administrative portal that we use to process claims, and our external claimant portal, which is what's used to file claims. Um, this includes updating our claim form, providing additional visibility into VCF processes through the addition of preliminary review uh, and personal representative validation processes, providing claim statuses that are available to claimants so they can see where their claim is in the process, automatically populating key data points from our system into our claim determinations and using that population as a validation mechanism, improving user interfaces for portions of the system that create confusion for users, etc. Um, in making these improvements, and it is a continually improving process, um, our systems team does leverage the Agile approach to system development by focusing on getting user feedback on areas of the system that could be improved, including from our law firm users um, who are filing claims on behalf of their clients. We do focus groups and trainings with them pretty regularly. Um, we, priori we prioritize our development efforts in the areas that will provide the most benefits to users, um, and we have a pretty extensive prioritization process to make sure that what we're doing are things that affect large numbers of claims and that we're not dedicating large amounts of efforts to things that will only affect small numbers of claims. Um, and we push out regular deployments to get new functionality into the hands of our users as quickly as possible, both internal and external, so that they can provide feedback on how we can continue to improve the system. So it is a very iterative process um, and very much takes advantage of the, of the so-called agile method. Great. And I'm sure that's getting better every day as everything Agile does, correct? Thank you. Um, and then, you know, switching to the appeals process, in 2018, the, the VCF rendered determinations on 343 appeals. What's been done to address the timely here and increased number of appeals? And how are you leveraging innovative processes and 
technology to make that happen. So the number of appeals has increased mostly as a function of the fact that the number of determinations we're getting out the door has increased. Um, The appeal rate has actually not changed that much. But because we're getting more determinations out the door on a regular basis, the number of appeals has continued to increase as well. Um, Most of our appeals are held in New York um, because that's where most of our claimants are, although we do appeals in D.C. on occasion. We do appeals in New York uh, three days a week. We've added a hearing day um, to our weekly calendar. And we continue to reassess our processes to determine how, especially our new permanent authorization longevity, um, impacts the systems that we have in place for that were created for a much shorter-term program. Um, Some of that may mean changes to the appeals process, but by no means are we going to slow anything down. Um, The mindset is one of streamlining and simplifying wherever possible. It is important, however, and we are always mindful that the appeals process is the best avenue for claimants to meet with us and tell us their stories. It is, in, in some cases, sort of their last chance to do that. And in many cases, the hearing itself is cathartic for these individuals. And we have a very dedicated team of hearing officers, some of whom are internal members of my staff, some of whom are brought on board as special appointees of the attorney general just for this purpose, who really make an effort to make the hearings process as non-adversarial as possible and a place where claimants can feel comfortable coming in and talking about things that are not always very easy to talk about and can be difficult. And so while we always want to make sure that speed, though necessary, um, we always want to make sure that that speed never compromises the non-adversarial and compassionate nature of these proceedings because it is the place where we have the most interface with our claimants. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I understand that since the beginning of the uh, reopening in 2011 of the VCF, it is my understanding that the uh, there's been work. It's been hard to minimize, uh, hard work put towards minimizing the burden on claimants. Um, by establishing direct information exchanges, um, what are you doing in this area to uh, to enhance it or to expand it? So this has been an area where we have truly been able to simplify the process for the claimants. And one of the reasons why um, some would say that the claim generation, the claim determination process was so slow in the early years of the program is because we were working tremendously hard to create the foundation that we now are able to build on. These arrangements are very much a part of that foundation. We work with multiple federal and state entities across the board, each of us which which each of which provides information that we use in assessing claims directly to us. It serves two functions. Number one, it eliminates the need for the claimants to go to these entities separately to get this information to us. And number two, it provides us with an external data validation from a third party that we trust. And so Obviously, these relationships include the World Trade Center Health Program, uh, of course, but we also receive information directly from the Social Security Administration, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Department of Labor, the Office of Personnel Management, and the Department of Justice's own Office of Justice Programs, Public Safety Officers Benefits Program. We also have extremely collaborative relationships and receive information from the New York State Workers' Compensation Board, the Fire Department of New York, the New York Police Department, the New York City Employees Retirement System, and various other New York City and state pension boards and unions. So maintaining these relationships, working to facilitate 
the data flows, and using this information to enhance the integrity of our claims process by providing third-party validation are very critical components of the VCF operation. That's very good. So, you know, um, getting a fuller understanding of the appropriate compensation, um, the, the eligibility requirements, and, and things like that it rests on communication with the 9-11 community. Um, what are you doing to expand outreach to this community? One of the primary concerns I had when I took the job in 2016 was to try to make sure that people who were eligible for compensation were aware that the program was out there. It has been eye-opening to realize just how difficult that can be at times. Um, I mentioned earlier our our conversations with the FBI, um, which continues to be a partner, and and Director Ray has really made it a mission of the Bureau to try to make sure that that employees, that his employees are aware that this program is available to them. But we have never assumed that anyone or any group already knows about the VCF. We continue to cultivate important relationships within the 9-11 community, working through the unions, working through the employers, working through the city, um, to piggyback on their outreach events, to offer our own information to them so that they can distribute it to their claimant, to their employees and their um, members. And we've paid very particular attention to the federal workforce because that's where I come from. Mm -hmm. I was a federal employee, and we know that the federal community has been underserved, and so we've been trying very hard to get the word out to all of the federal agencies that were present, DHS, which was not DHS at the time, but obviously Department of Homeland Security components were present, Secret Service, um, Customs, FBI, all of the law enforcement agencies, uh, the Marshal Service at the Justice Department, uh, the EPA, the federal transportation uh, safety people. So there was a very large number of, of federal employees present that we're trying to get the word out to. Our outreach efforts run the gamut, um, from interviews like this to town hall meetings hosted by the Manhattan Borough President or members of Congress um, who have been very involved, particularly the local New York delegation. Uh, we do, we've done lunches with retired union workers. Earlier this week in New York, there was a meeting organized by the United Federation of Teachers at which we had a presence that was trying to reach students who were in school in the area at the time of 9-11 and are now demonstrating health effects. And so we have really made an effort to try to make ourselves available whenever possible. Up until relatively recently, we've had to be very careful um, because up until relatively recently, all of our administrative costs, this is still true, come out of the fund and the fund was limited. And so every dollar that we spent on outreach was a dollar that we didn't have to give to a claimant. Now that we have less concern about funding, we hope that we are able to dedicate consistent with our need to remain fiscally responsible, some more efforts to the outreach possibility. It just picks up on another question I had, and it was related to the operational um, aspects of your office. What are you doing to enhance, maybe potentially enhance, uh, and update the website? So our website is a tremendous source of information, both for claimants and for people who may be eligible for compensation but not yet registered. We receive over 60,000 visitors to our website every month, um, and we gather feedback from users through our helpline and other fora and are continually looking for ways to make sure that information is relevant and easy to find. We've done two major redesigns of the website over the years and are currently working through the Department of Justice as part of their overall effort to modernize 
all DOJ websites. So that effort has very recently kicked off, and we do expect to launch a new website under the new redesign um, mechanisms in the spring of 2020. What does the future hold for the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund? We will ask Rupa Bhattacharya, special master of the VCF, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. How can government best use big data to transform decision-making, public services delivery, and communication? The IBM Center Report Integrating Big Data and Thick Data to Transform Public Services Delivery by Yan Yan Ang presents five recommendations for public managers introducing the concept of mixed analytics, urging thick data, meaning qualitative information about users, to be presented alongside big data to improve government decision-making. Visit businessofgovernment.org to read more. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. My co-host from IBM is Don Van Hagen. I talked to many of my guests about the use of collaboration and partnerships among federal agencies and with the private sector uh, to achieve mission results. Um, how are you leveraging partnerships and collaborations to improve operations, achieve program outcomes, and uh, more importantly, execute on your mission? So I think we've we've talked about some of that already. Yeah. Obviously, we have a, a tremendous relationship with the legal community that files VCF claims. We use them as a resource to talk about policy, to make sure that policies are clear, to make sure that they're reasonable, to make sure that they make sense in particular cases. And so they provide a very good feedback loop for us. We also have extremely collaborative and helpful relationships with the members of Congress who are in the New York area or in other areas. We have very large claimant populations in the places that you would expect where there are large numbers of retired uh, employees. We have large claimant populations out of Florida, out of Arizona, out of South Carolina, uh, and so we have relationships with congressmen and congresswomen in all of those areas. We appear at their events. We make sure that they have information available. We leverage them to make sure that their constituents have the information that they need. And we also have a very collaborative relationship in providing information to them when they come to us and ask about constituent requests relating to VCF claims. Are you are you looking, you know, with the, the changing population and the expansion of the fund into 2019? and trying to keep up with potential survivors and find new folks. Are there new new relationships that you're looking to to build upon or new ways you're looking to get to the populations? I, I think that there are. As time goes on, I mean, there are, there are a number of already established sort of 9-11 related advocacy groups, yeah. um, both that were originally created in the wake of 9-11 to deal with victims and survivors. But we're also seeing newer ones come into play. Um, there's a new students group, for mm-hmm. example, that's attempting to focus on people who were students at the time of 9-11 who are now suffering health issues that are working to get information out the door to the people that they can reach. Obviously, social media is, yeah. is unfortunately a relatively new thing for government, even though it's not new for anybody right. else. But um, that is something that we're looking into. It is not something that the VCF has done up till this point, And so it is something that we're looking into. But in the meantime, we can get information to these groups and advocates who can provide the information out to their constituencies. We also have uh, growing relationships with both 
the World Trade Center Health Program's Responder Steering Committee, which includes all of the major organizations, the fire department, the police department, EMS, et cetera, that had personnel at the site, particularly in New York, and the World Trade Center Health Program's Survivor Steering Committee, which includes representatives from many of the boroughs and community boards who have residents in the area. And so through those relationships, we've been able to um, build upon their efforts to reach their members by providing up-to-date information, streamlined talking points, um, written materials that they can sort of distribute to try to get more word out into the neighborhoods. That's great. Um, you know, before we close, I just want to ask you, are there any other key accomplishments you'd like to highlight? And more importantly, what's what's coming, what's the future like for the Victim uh, Compensation Fund? The clearest indication of our success is the permanent authorization. It is very unusual for a federal government program to be authorized with essentially unlimited funding for 90 years. Um, and we, we feel that that's a testament to the program that we've created um, and that we've operated for the last four or five years in a way that does exactly what it's supposed to. The fact that Congress would enter into that sort of authorization with no substantive alteration of the procedures that we use, the mechanisms that we use to calculate awards, of the discretion that's been awarded to the special master. All of that was left in place. And so I think that clearly reflects that the program is doing exactly what it was supposed to do. That said, permanent authorization creates a new challenge. We have to figure out how this program looks going forward, and we have to take a program that was created to serve a limited term, Mm -hmm. was then renewed for another limited term. And at each one of those stages, we made decisions about how the process was going to go forward, what sort of technology we were going to use that were based in the fact that we had limited funds and limited time. Now we no longer face either of those constraints, although as of course we have a responsibility to be fiscal and fair. And so we have to figure out how we're going to move this program onto a permanent footing. Um, And that is an an effort that is underway. It is something that we're talking about and thinking about on a daily basis. Um, But I think it's going to be a little while longer before we really see where that's going to lead us. What advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? Do it. (laughs) I have found my career in public service to be nothing but rewarding. It is, there is very little else that compares with the ability to do the kinds of things that I have had the privilege to do, from defending the interests of the United States in litigation, to being on the front lines of making critical policy decisions in times of crisis, to establishing operating mechanisms like the VCF that provide needed relief to deserving populations. Some say that public service is a calling, that there are some who are suited to it, some maybe who are not. But I have always thought that everyone has a role to play in supporting the institutions of government and making sure that it meets the needs of those who depend on it. And so I think it's really important that anyone who considers public service really take a look out there and see what we do. Government does a lot. You don't always hear about it in this day and age, but... There's going to be something for everybody. Thank you for taking some time out today to join us. Uh, But more importantly, Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. 
I appreciate that. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to get the word out about the VCF. Like I said, that's been one of our main goals. Um, and so I would urge anyone who thinks that they might have a claim or just has questions or wants more information to please visit our website at www.vcf.gov. And please make sure it is .gov. There's a lot of pretender sites out there. Um, and also, please call our helpline at one 855 and we'll be happy to answer your questions. Terrific. Thanks again. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Rupa Bhattacharya, Special Master of the September 11th Victim Compensation Fund. My co-host from IBM has been Don Finnehagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.